we're not deconstructing ourselves. I think we're allowing a process to happen. And one point I'm really adamant about, it's not a force from the outside. It's coming from within. So people, oh, you're deconstructing because you're listening to those bad voices out there. No, there's something in the system that I'm a part of that's breaking down in front of my eyes and it's not working. And I feel very disoriented right now. I'm not sure what to do about it. And and it's following that process. So it's not something that we willfully and pridefully impose on a, a perfectly wonderful thing that's working fine. I just want to make trouble. And it's not really a negative thing. It's actually all systems stutter and and trip. No system gets it right. If we're talking about God, that's, that is impossible to think that any, I mean, theology is a second order discipline. It's not it's not the main thing. It's the thing we use, the words we use to get at the real thing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Define the Relationship podcast, a podcast where we explore the relationship we have with the Bible and ourselves. I'm one of your hosts, Darlene Enstick. And I'm the other host, Ted Enstick. And as you can tell from our names, we belong together. I just defined the relationship. Welcome to the Define the Relationship podcast. This week, you are in for a real treat. At the beginning of this podcast, we began by diving into the work of biblical scholar Pete Enns, specifically the book How the Bible Actually Works. Today, we get to sit down with Pete Enns for an interesting, thought-provoking, and surprising conversation. Enjoy. Well, we're so glad that you were able to make this work. We, uh... Yeah, finally. We kind of pushed you pretty hard. <laughs> no, I'm glad you did. And the thing is that when we first started talking, um, Ashley, who you've gotten to know very well, I'm sure, over the past few weeks, but she started helping me in November. And, and so she started organizing things and she said, listen, we have to get these things scheduled. And, uh, so we're trying to find a way to do that without me going crazy. Um, and this is the result. So I'm not going crazy today. It's sort of nice and scheduled and spaced. And, and I always say like, I'll get to it later. Can we talk in a month? But now I don't have to do that. I just give it to her and she plans it. And then the, the, uh, the stuff settles. That's it's really nice, you know, because I was just going crazy with scheduling and emailing and all the other stuff that I'm doing. So and now you're wondering why you didn't do this earlier. <laughs> yes. As I said in that uh, grand gesture email that one of the things we tried to do to get you to come on was the fact that your name and Darlene's father's name are the identical name. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm an Enns. My dad's Peter Enns. What's his middle name? Um, Gerhard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mine's Eric. So. Okay. Which so, the family joke is like my parents were immigrants and they didn't realize by middle naming me Eric, I can never have an, uh, monogram shirts. I can never <laughs> sign. I can never sign by my initials. It's always PE. I can't do the whole thing. And I've always been sort of bothered by that. You know, it's, it's, you know, they didn't know it spelled a bodily function, but I just, they named me after my father's brother and then my, my grandfather. So, um, it's just one of the many trials of what it is to be me. You know, it's my name is a curse. So anyway, but I've never met another ends. Well, there's quite a yeah. few ends here. And yeah. so we thought, I thought, well, we both thought, like, could we be related? 
So, Ted. I don't know how much you know about Mennonites, but that's the faith background that we're from. We're Mennonites. And uh, there's tons of Enzes. Yeah. And we don't just check social media when we're researching people. We do genealogies because we okay, all want to know if we're related <laughs> or not. And um, the good news or the bad news is, is that we're not related at all. Yeah. Like, okay. I, I could find your name and you do not match us, either one of us, at all. Okay. But it did, it raised other questions because um, your family came from Kyrgyzstan is, at, at one point right. or... Like, at least your father was born there, right? My father was, yeah. yeah. Good for you. How did you find all that stuff? Is this the Mennonite Mafia? You uh, get, pretty you much. There's actually a, there's a database called Grandma Online, it's a, but it basically allows you to find people by their birth date and their name. And then you can would look you, for connections. Um, I, I'll, could you... Would you mind sending me that link or, the, or whatever information? Because my sister who lives in Syracuse, New York. It was about three hours north of here, but she's the family genealogist. And she researched, and we have a book this thick with pictures in it and stuff. And I thought my father, I mean, long story short, he was born in 1920. He came to America after the war, and he was captured by the Germans during the war um, and was almost shot, but he became a translator. They kept him alive. So he spent six months in the coal mines after the wars, you know, war reparations. And then came over, he met my mom on the boat. This is like right out of central casting kind of a story. And she was fleeing as a child. She was German, raised in Poland, and fleeing Hitler when he invaded. And so she spent time in England, and she was a nanny. And so they just met on the boat, and they were married two years later. And, you know, here we are. So it's a, it's a pretty common story. Um, but I grew up never not knowing that anybody else had that story because there were no Mennonites. And my father was probably clinically depressed most of his life. And uh, he left his family behind. And um, he thought his father died in a camp, but he wound up dying in 1968. So, I mean, there was a grandfather I never knew. And uh, just it's a sad story, really, when you look at it. But Wow. Um, so do but you Mennonites have... have a tremendous history, you know. Yeah. They like, really do. Like, do you have any... Do you have any knowledge about how your your dad's family ended up in Kyrgyzstan? Like, uh, like from the genealogy, it looks like they were in South Crimea at one point. Um, they may have, yeah. Um, I I think the, the best that I can tell you is that my father's grandfather made the trek from Germany to Russia with Tsar Catherine, Tsarist, or Catherine the Great, or whoever it was, and then my father's father was born en route. Yeah, and then they settled in Kyrgyz, as my dad would always say. And I actually made him write a book for me in German because he couldn't write it in English, so I still have that. And um, so I, I got a little bit of a sense of the history, but the problem, not I mean, not to get into all these details, but my father was deeply wounded emotionally from all this stuff. And it was very hard for him to stay focused and give like a clinical history of his life. All other stuff got wrapped up in it. So I've had to separate those things. And, uh, um, but yeah, I, I would like, it's like she did an incredible research and she has pictures and she even went to Germany to visit, um, like our cousins a few years ago, you know, and she brought back pictures and, and I met, um, two of my father's brothers about a year before he died, they came to America and I met them and it was the most wonderfully unsettling experience I ever had. Cause I, my whole family narrative was rewritten in front of my eyes. 
Like I never saw these people before, right? So, do you guys do therapy, by the way? Because uh, oh, I feel man. like I owe you money. We could spend uh, an entire hour yeah. for sure talking just about this. Do you know what year you're like? What year did your dad come to America? Well, he came. Um, they came over in nineteen fifty-six. So my parents came in 1940. Well, my dad came in 1948. So that was yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we, well, we're we're actually related. We, this is one of the things that came oh, out of this. Is, this is, we is decided, a biblical thing now. Exactly. <laughs> we're thinking like half sister, married yeah, to half sister. Is that exa- it? <laughs> we, it was a bit unsettling for us and our friends when we realized that when we did the relationship match for ourselves, we we were more related than we had ever known. Nothing, yeah. nothing problem for the gene pool, but uh, it's kind of like... Nothing illegal. Nothing illegal. <laughs> nothing nothing gets you incarcerated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would, you know, the thing is, I would actually be interested in connecting with you on some of this stuff and hearing things, and maybe I can go through that process you went through, and I would value that because, I, you know, the older I get, I'm 60 now, the older I get, the more I value that. And I always have, but... Um, you know, other things get in the way and you just, it's not an immediate need. So I, I don't always follow up on it, but. Uh. Um, it's important to recognize that, you know, you're a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University and you have written countless books. Many of them are very familiar to the people that are going to be listening to this. Specifically, the Bible tells me so, the sin of certainty and how the Bible actually works. And um, I'm sure you would like this to be said that you have a recent book Exodus for Normal People that has just come out. And um, I'm assuming much of that is the material is in your Pete Rune's Exodus podcast on your... Uh, um, yeah, although, you know, it's it's not, it's more than that because I, I go and I have just have a lot more time to develop stuff. And I, um, I started thinking it would be very close, but it winds up being, there's overlap, but it's a really different kind of experience. So, yeah. Yeah, and people need to know that they can catch up with you on your podcast, The Bible for Normal People, um, although most of the people we know don't kind of fit into that category of being normal people, but I think we know what you're getting at. And uh, just love your trademarked, this is the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Like, um, very Thank sharp you. of you to trademark that. <laughs> I think John Piper was hoping to lock that down, but it didn't work out yeah. for him. We've gotten some negative feedback from that. Really? From people who have absolutely no sense of humor. Like, you know, I listen to your podcast and it's very enlightening, but I can't believe how arrogant you are thinking you're the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. And and don't you think other podcasts are also God-ordained? I'm like, dude, you are missing the point entirely. They're, none of them are God-ordained. It's sarcasm. It's just they'll make the point. But it's really it's, – it's, it's, um, we've stopped answering those emails. They don't – they're not – Often, but they come in, you know, every once in a while that somebody just doesn't get it. And that's okay. It's a pretty good filter to to kind of get that. You know, you're right. right. It definitely is. Right, right. We can't please everyone. No, no podcasts, no book, no person can please everybody. So you just try to be true to yourself without, um, without hurting people. Right. I mean, that's sort of what it comes down to. We're not, a lot of the humor is self-deprecating. It's not like aimed at other people. So, Well, just to give you a tiny bit of background about us, I don't know how much you know about us, but Ted and I um, lead a church called Seeds, um, 
and we find ourselves in the Mennonite denomination, like we talked about. And during the pandemic, we uh, because we couldn't gather, we decided to move on something that we've been wanting to do for actually a long time, and that is to have a podcast. And we were going through your book, How the Bible Actually Works, and... Um, so we named the the podcast um, "Define the Relationship." Um, Define the Relationship podcast, and we went through that book chapter by chapter. And so this, I think, is episode what is it, twenty four? Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, we've moved on to some other topics. But um, relationship is kind of a core. Fostering relationships is kind of a core value of our community. We have three kind of anchors that we keep coming back to. And so we've been looking at our relationship with the Bible. And so one of the way that I guess that we wanted to start with you was to ask you to share a little bit about how you would define your relationship with the Bible. (laughs) It's complicated. I think that's the, that's the relationship. Um, and it is because, you know, um, because I do it for a living and that complicates things considerably. And I have, you know, with seminary and doctoral work, I have nine plus years of focusing on this question. And so it is complicated for me because at times I look at it and I say, this is so distant for me. And I place it in history and I I can explain it pretty well historically, but then the connection with me is not, let's say, what it once was. And then I try to sort of foster something to um, help bring that back. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, a love lost, love regained and things. But I think what hasn't changed is the fact that I still really do love reading the Bible and I don't, I, I've never wanted to throw the Bible out. Um, it's just that, you know, when you see how the sausage is made, it looks different, right? And that's sort of the thing with, with anybody, uh, not just with my background, and other millions of us, but also just people with a lot of curiosity who read. It's the same kinds of experiences happen. And I think I would say my relationship with the Bible has been more a process of putting it in its place which is not to put it in the place of the Spirit or of God or of Christ, which no one will say they do, but sometimes it's put into that place that this is your authority. It's right here. This is over everything. And and um, I just think the, the Bible is just of a very different kind of thing. And, and if we, you know, get into trouble, as I've gotten into trouble, of sort of making it the supreme being, you know, in our lives. And, um, and so appreciating its complexities, its diversities, its weirdness, its messiness is part of taking the Bible seriously. And I, that's another part. I think I do take it very seriously, seriously enough to read it and interrogate it. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's all going into the complexities and the messiness of this relationship. And it, when you say what it once was or the love lost is like kind of from a, a more simplistic kind of black and white, like, did you have that experience as a child of it being a very kind of black and white 
Yeah, not as a child, because, yeah, my parents didn't really raise me. They were, you know, they sort of raised my sister and I Lutheran, and that was nice. So we had confirmation class, and I remember being in church in sort of liturgical environments, and that was really good. Um, But they didn't raise us like, you got to read your Bible, you know, or you believe what? You know, that never came up because they were, you know, Europeans— it's like, okay, they're Christian, just don't let it get out of hand, that kind of thing, you know, although they got involved in like evangelical churches, but it didn't really last, it just wasn't for them. So I didn't grow up like that. I had a conversion experience in high school at a Nazarene church, but even that wasn't like driven by, let's say, an inerrantist, biblicistic model of faith. That really didn't start to happen to me until um, around the time uh, I got married, and we just happened to be going to a church, a good church, but a conservative Presbyterian church, which then led me to a conservative Presbyterian seminary. And I was never really indoctrinated, but I think slowly that's what happened, that I sort of began to really, without reflecting on it, thinking of the Bible as a very uncomplicated sort of simple text that, yeah, you dig in, you get into some history, and isn't that interesting? But in ter- basically the problems, the problematic nature of the text was not something that I was really reveling in. Uh, that It took graduate school for that to happen to me, and about literally a month of graduate school where I could see the problems and I could see all these things just sort of like... Um, falling into place, you know, the tumblers are falling into place and say, okay, I can see why they say this. And I don't agree with my past tradition that said this is wrong, or this is unfaithful or something. So this is logically, analytically correct, and I need to be dealing with this. And so that really started the ball rolling for me. But I didn't, I'm thankful I didn't have, you know, decades of, um, I guess, baggage that I had to sort of work through either in therapy, literally, or with, uh, um, you know, a spiritual advisor or something that just, I was not raised a fundamentalist or an evangelical. I came into that later in life. And um, so I I never had the baggage. So I think like we have a, um, in our community of faith, a lot of people do have baggage. So the people that are listening to this podcast are mostly, I think, people in our community. And um, except after today, maybe. Like, this might help us. This might, this help. might help our reach. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, there's we have a bunch of questions that I think relate specifically to stuff that we're processing right now. We have a lot of people that are in the process of deconstructing and... Um, we have a ton of, um, people with young kids and they're still sort of showing up. Um, but we're having a lot of very open conversations about how they can't, they can't read the Bible. They don't know what they want to pass on to their kids. We're situated in the Bible belt here and a lot of people, a lot of wounding. Um, so that's kind of a, a little bit of our context. And I think one of the takeaways from your book, the biggest thing for me personally was just, I mean, I I think the fact that you kept talking about this wisdom, this, this work and responsibility of wisdom 
when we open the second we open the book, um, really began to trigger me in a positive way (laughs) that every time I picked it up, it was like, this is permission to like dig for wisdom and to, you know, you speak so often about reimagining faith and, um, I don't think that I have picked up my Bible since reading the book in without thinking, kind of having a bit of that, this is what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And it's been a beautiful um, thing for, for me. And so I'm just very grateful to you for, for the ways in which you used language. I think that was simple and accessible for people in our community as well to... Um, to start thinking about it differently when we're, when we're engaging it, if we can engage it. And some people can't engage well, that's it just right it. Some people aren't there. You're there, but others aren't, and that's okay. I mean, people are in different stages, and they can't be forced to consider something that they're not existentially really experiencing and feeling. So you keep holding out a model gently and and people eventually show up, I think. And I feel like I knew that, like the, the, the wisdom thing, but I don't know. There was something very transformational in thinking about um, um, that the Bible is so relentlessly um, giving permission and demanding, in fact, that we continue this work. Um Whereas before I might have thought about it as a bit more, um, I don't know what the right word is, kind of like I'm doing something, but I probably am not, shouldn't be doing it this way. (laughs) It's an act of unfaithfulness to be thinking these things, right? right? Yeah, or at least you have a sense that, well, I still need to kind of get to the right way to think about what this is saying, because there's a ground zero of meaning here that one needs to find, and we can engage it we can wrestle with it but still at the end of the day like what's coming out the other end and i think maybe some of your your writing is giving people a bit more freedom to see like well it there's a lot of evolution even in the scriptures i mean i felt like that was one of the things that kind of reminded us why can we do wisdom work because the bible was already doing it internally um but do you want to say a bit more about that piece, like it feels like you, um, yeah, like what, what do you think we need to, to really kind of hone in on when we are thinking about deconstructing our faith, but still wanting to take the Bible seriously? Well, um, can I, can I quibble a little bit with some language here? Cause it, and only because it's helped me, I'm trying not to use the word deconstructing and I'm learning language from, I know Richard Rohr uses the language of orientation, disorientation, reorientation, which I find to be, I mean, it's a tough process. It's a challenging process. It's a little less combative language. I feel like we've argued with Brad about this. Oh, Brad really? Okay. Yeah. Brad, Brad, oh, Brad. Yeah, he doesn't like that word and I've fought for it actually, but... Well, I don't I mean, de- deconstructing. Yeah. I don't, I don't dis, I don't, I use it. I don't dislike it. I just think, I think for some people it might help a little bit more to use maybe slightly different language. It gets at the same thing. 
And I also think, I mean, I know what you're saying, Ted. I also don't think, though, that we're not deconstructing ourselves. I think we're allowing a process to happen. And one point I'm really adamant about, it's not a force from the outside. It's coming from within. So people, oh, you're deconstructing because you're listening to those bad voices out there. No, there's something in the system that I'm a part of that's breaking down in front of my eyes, and it's not working. And I feel very disoriented right now. I'm not sure what to do about it. And and it's following that process. So it's not something that we willfully and pridefully impose on a, a perfectly wonderful thing that's working fine. I just want to make trouble. And it's not really a negative thing. It's actually all systems stutter and and trip. No system gets it right. If we're talking about God, that's that is impossible to think that any. I mean, theology is a second order discipline. It's not. It's not the main thing. It's the thing we use, the words we use to get at the real thing. Um, and and I think that's really important to 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 process because it helps. I think that helps a lot of people I know thinking through what's happening to them. Not only is it normal, but it's you're being driven from the inside out, not an outside force that's attacking you or attacking your church or something. I like that because that's really true. It's a very much a, that question of this isn't working for me anymore. There's, there's There's something that needs to shift. We need to get rid of some things maybe, and maybe reinvigorate some things and restore some things. Well, we had um, a book study. We have book studies of the Bible for Normal People like every month, and we read together John Caputo's book, What Would Jesus Deconstruct? And he uses the language of deconstruction, right? But he, he, it's not in a combative way, but that's where I got the language of this is happening from the inside out. And, you know, he said that the church... And I can put there the church slash the church's theology is not God's plan A, it's plan B. Plan A is the kingdom of God, which we never really reach. And all our churches and all our theologies are efforts to get at that. And they're all fallible. They all fall short of the ideal of what the kingdom of God means. They're not the same thing. The church and the kingdom of God are not the same thing. The church is what we're doing while the kingdom is developing or being revealed or whatever, which is why all our theologies need to be held with with open hands and not with clenched fists, because they all falter. That is, to me, such a liberating notion to be thinking about this process of orientation, disorientation, deconstruction, reconstruction, reorientation, because it's not only okay, it's required. It has to happen at some point. If if you never have a process where you're changing how you articulate God, I really think you're not growing as you're supposed to be growing. That doesn't mean everybody goes in the same direction, because there isn't one direction. But... Um, it's still, it's something that is is good and normal and healthy, and it's a sign of a life that is, I think, keeping in step with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, so here's a bit of a niggling question that I have, and maybe some of it comes from how it's been framed for us, and so um, we can't we can't leave the framing. But it comes around. You you talk. You use the language of authority. How the Bible is an authority um, when you're talked about your relationship to the Bible. 
And I wonder how you would help us to think about what it means for the Bible to be authoritative for us as a a community of Jesus followers. Or um, one of the things we did a couple of days ago, we looked at our confession of faith, our, our doctrinal sort of piece for our denomination. And, you know, there's always language about how the Bible is basically, I guess, you know, um, repping on Second Timothy, it's like good for faith and life, and and um, so we need it as an authority. Um, almost there's a description that it's sort of the authority for for our life as Christians, and it feels like some of the things that you were teaching us in your books, maybe. I don't know, can we still use that word? Or like, um, we tend to think of it in terms of like, okay, we're dealing with a really hot button issue, let's say like end of life issues. Well, what is the, how does the authoritative Bible speak to that issue in an authoritative way that we can, you know, you, you know we what I'm talking about. We can be absolutely certain we're doing the right thing, yeah. yeah. And I, those, those are great questions, but I think words like authority or, or inspired or revealed really need to be rethought for many people because the de- their definitions come to us really from a very um, analytical, top-down, and I'm going to just throw the word in modernist point of view, which is very scientific. There's authority in this and that. And it becomes sort of like, um, you know, the paper Pope and telling you what to do. But the point is that, you know, it, the Bible is a little bit too diverse and messy to really act that way. And, um, you know, I, this is why, you know, I've, in terms of how the Bible is an authority, it's, an, it, it's, it's part of an, a system of um, wisdom grooming, I guess, of, of bringing us to a wiser place. And Scripture is a non-negotiable part of that. But how we engage Scripture really is a function of our ability, of our reasoning ability, our experiences, which include just when and where we were born, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, the Bible experience tradition and, you know, the, the Episcopalian three-legged stool or the, you know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. What's the other one? Uh, tradition, reason, Scripture, and experience, right? Th- those are the four. And I think they work together to function as a, um, a, a, a flexible and um, editable, <laughs> editable, not editable, editable <laughs> um, sort of structure for our lives, which is always sort of flowing and moving. And to me, that's sort of, that's, that's an, I can call that an authority, you know, but it's not a, a kingly authority. It's not a, uh, a legislative authority, because I think the Bible makes sure we don't do that, you know. And well, that how can you be sure about this? How, how do you know how to construct your doctrine? Well, doctrine is something that's constructed again through reason and experience and tradition and scripture. It's not just reading the text, because anybody who reads the text reads it from a location. We don't read it with. Um, you know, from 30,000 feet up looking down, we're a part of something on earth. And that's why there's always a hermeneutical and theological dimension to how we read the Bible. It's not just a thing that has plain meaning. It has to be interpreted. 
So am I hearing you correct just to connect it to even our podcast name about defining the relationship? It authority means honoring the relationship of the the scriptures to reason, experience, the tradition of the community and the time we're living in right now and a dynamic that will shift. I like that. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And the converse of that is I, I don't think it's appropriate to say, I don't care what the Bible says, but I do think it's appropriate to say, I don't think this is true of what I'm reading in the Bible, and I don't think it really applies to our situation. Um, and maybe it's something that we should not even think of continuing. Because to come to that conclusion is on the basis of really taking it seriously enough to think through it. You know, I don't think that it's okay to think that God wants us to kill people and take their land. That's part of the biblical narrative. It's not the major part, but it's a part of the biblical narrative. I don't think that describes God. I don't think that God, in chapter 6 of the Bible, is so out of ideas everybody has to die. I can understand historically why a story like the flood story would be told the way that it is, given other flood stories of the ancient world. I can see Israel's distinct theology and how it tells that story, but I don't think that's the last word. Just because it's a verse in the Bible, that's not it. So our, our understanding of the Bible as authority actually has to take very seriously, I, I think this is a fundamental point, especially for Christians, we have to take seriously the trajectories of the Bible and how the parts, the later parts get you thinking about some of the earlier parts, and that includes the New Testament and how that becomes like the, the primary foundation for us and how we think about God. This is not supersessionism. This is not Old Testament bad, New Testament good. I'm not, that's not where I'm coming from. But there is a narrative arc, so to speak, to, to the Christian Bible, which does culminate in Jesus somehow. And when you're struggling with Scripture that way, there are some parts you'll probably say, I don't think this sounds very much like the God revealed to us in a crucified and risen Messiah. I don't think so. That's a very reasoned position to take, and that is not um, denying biblical authority, only it's denying biblical authority of a certain sort, of a certain sort that doesn't consider and take seriously Scripture itself in its diversity, in its ambiguities, and in its antiquities. I've just solved everything. I think we can probably just say goodbye right now. (laughs) In our talking about deconstructing, reconstructing more recently, um, one of our, our folks who is a who's uh, like basically a millennial with young kids. And, uh, and he says this, I think it's kind of, I'll just, I'll just read it because he says it very well. He says, I remember growing up getting the Gideon Bible. Um, this was common for us in Canada, at least, to get the Gideon Bible in grade five. Didn't matter, public school or whatever we got. Do you know, the, do you know what that is? Yeah, the Gideon okay, Bible. Yeah. Gideon's yeah. Are, yeah, so yeah. it was a, it was so a red little New Testament. is it? No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> He said, in the front, there was a story about John Nicholson and how he read his Bible every day and God blessed him greatly. As a kid in grade five, that seemed like a good thing to pursue, but it also led to a lot of guilt around not reading enough. 
and frustration when it wasn't as impactful as everyone around me seemed to claim it was. May have just been my perception, he says. So needless to say, I've let regular Bible reading go as a part of my normal routine, but now I'm wondering about passing on this particular value to my kids. I want them to have a positive experience with the book and understand why it's so important to my family and our history. And I think the question embedded in there is, how does one do that when it's as ancient, diverse, and ambiguous as you have led us to believe, and I think we believe it too, what does it look like to invite our children into that mess? And maybe just to add on to that, to give you a little moment to think about your how you're going to solve this problem for us. Um, it used to be, in our area anyway, that uh, people would grow up in the church, then leave the church, and then eventually they get married and have kids, and then they drop their kids off at Sunday school and... They still wanted their kids to have something, but then they, you know, they would reconnect when they had kids, but just basically to drop them off. Now, our experience is we don't know, we don't want our kids to go to Sunday school because we don't want that, we don't know what we want, and but we know we don't want you to talk about the th- same things we were taught Right. You don't want their church experience to lead to therapy when they're 20. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think that is, in my opinion, one of the pressing questions for, I would say, even the continuation, the, the, um, not the continuation of the Christian faith, but the, the manner in which the Christian faith will be in conversation with the culture around us. And it's a, it's a, bottom-up, groundswell kind of thing, because I know a lot of young people, one of my daughters has two kids, uh, three and a half and and about 15 months, same questions. They they go to church, but they're like, yeah, we're not really sure, like, they believe weird stuff over there too, you know, and we don't want them to, um, to, to pass on something that we're not really sure we believe anymore about the Bible or about the Bible stories. And, you know, what do you do in a situation like that? And I, heck if I know, honestly, I mean, it's like, there are churches out there that get that. It's, 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 yeah, I know. (laughs) Well, seriously, I'm just a grandfather now. Life's easy for me. I know all about child rearing as a grandfather, not, not as a father. But I think, um, I think finding some community of faith is very important, but that is a, 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 a non-biblicistic congregation or just community. It doesn't even have to be church. It's just a bunch of other people who have some faith, more like an AA meeting, you know, where you have people of faith who are trying to figure it out and maybe try to figure it out together. Have people that you can be can form close communities with who are in a similar stage of life where you don't have to be fake in front of them because, you know, your kids recite, my child won a Bible verse memorization contest. <laughs> Big whoop. They'll be on drugs when they're 18. You know, it does, or maybe not. Who knows? That has no correlation whatsoever with where their lives are going to go. And I think to, to create, I, I think the need, there's a need out there, a desperate need to create cultures where people can be authentic about their faith and their struggles 
and get permission that it's okay. You talked about permission before, Darlene, to get permission from others that it's okay not to be a perfect parent. It's okay to have questions and deep down believing that God can actually address that and handle that. And that's part of just who they are. I mean, if, if the choice is between, you know, fake it and just don't make any waves, just stay with the system and leaving the system entirely, I think God uh, values our authenticity and our integrity, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know what I would do about dropping kids off at church the way we did, you know, and the, all the stuff they brought up, you know, and, 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 and the, the crises that they went through because of what they heard, some of which, my youngest is now 27, some of which I just recently heard within the past year. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's what they said. And it's, it's, it still is with them. And there's a difference between um, kind of the trauma stories and needing to kind of, it's okay, like some people have talked about it, it's okay to go through a process and then need to un- unlearn it, that that's part of the order and disorder. That's We don't want to like rescue our children from ever having to go through the phase of disorder because that's just part of Here's the thing. I think this is what I've sensed and I've experienced this. I know other people have the great fears. What if I screw my kids up and they go to hell? Well, the first thing you do is take hell off the table, you know, and again, talk to theologians who have been around since, oh, I don't know, the ancient church who are like, yeah, that's not, that's metaphorical. That's not, that's not a real thing that happens to you. And and it, it really is a matter of, for some people, for parents of a certain generation who are raised a certain way and who are deconstructing out of it, that family of origin stuff sticks with them when they raise their kids. So it's time for the parents to really be cycle breakers in that respect and have a different vision for what God is like. Where maybe, what if God isn't out to get you? What if God isn't vindictive? What if God isn't looking over you and saying, hmm, you didn't pray before your meal today, and that incurs my wrath, you know, that kind of a thing, which is a very easy kind of God to connect with. I mean, conceptually, that's that retributional that Brad probably talked about too, the retributional kind of God, and that's um, that's an easy God, that's a black and white kind of God to connect with. But what if... What if grace is real? What if God unconditionally loves and supports every human being? Yeah. And that I, makes a difference in how you look at this stuff. And, yeah. and dear God, we're trying. Yeah. We're just trying somehow to do the right thing with these kids. Yeah. And I, uh, I feel like we're on that project a lot with our, with our particular community and even some things around, you know, before the pandemic hit, having parent happy hours, um, where people just, you know, really showed up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and just had conversations about about faith and the fear uh, of screwing up their kids is definitely. I think that was on the top top three for sure. And um, so, so was this noticed, was this a happy hour? Yeah, like a happy hour. Yeah, really, like a happy hour. Like a real happy hour. Yeah. 
That's how you get parents to show up with yeah. young kids. Well oh, done. yeah, we had tons of well, parents. Well, provide child care. <laughs> provide well. child care, provide, like, food and drinks, and it was a great time. And not um, just tea. No. I'm just getting clarity here. No, no. Beer, margaritas. Um, what else did we have? Yeah, we had some hard stuff and some, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Can I come? <laughs> sounds Please. like a great idea. I feel yeah. like even more people would come if you came. You'll, you'll have to quarantine for two weeks, but it'll be worth <laughs> it. That's right. It will be worth it. I'll quarantine in one of your happy hours. But as part of that conversation, also, um, I think there's been t- a ton of permission to let go of things and safety to ask questions. That's been a really, really positive thing. And um, a friend of mine almost use the exact example that you said, like, okay, stop praying before meals. Cause it's just like, what am I earning? What am I trying to like put together all these different examples? But now how do I start again? I don't know if I can, if read the Bible again, how do I start? So I'll throw that question from that kind of background how do you have any sense of advice about like, okay, I think I can start again. How, how would I do that? Well, I mean, if, if they get to the point where they're saying, I think I can start again, that's great. But if people aren't there, they shouldn't feel guilty about it because maybe these things have been, you know, prayer and Bible have been traumatized for them so much that it's not good to enter back into that. People who don't go to church for a long time, I just can't go back. Well, you got to go back. Why do you have to go back? I mean, maybe there's a lot of healing that has to take place in, in very unexpected ways. Maybe really taking walks on a Sunday morning would be better for you for a while than showing up in a building. Um, but that, again, that's why you're creating a culture of vulnerability like you're doing and, and, and authenticity. People might be more willing to come back. But with respect to the Bible, like, I, I, I sort of want to start again. I'm not sure what I might sort of – it depends on the person, of course. But what I might suggest is can you think of any parts of the Bible that you've ever wanted to know better or understand better? Just do that, you know. Um, is there any, Are there any places in the Bible that just, you know, in, in your past life that gave you so much positive energy reading it? that might not be a bad place to start. Um, I would try to read it as if you've never read it before, which is hard to do. But um, and, and as hokey as this sounds, I think having a good, honest study Bible where you can actually make it like, I want to learn about this stuff more. And maybe the footnotes will help me understand what a Pharisee is, you know? Or why does Moses say this over here, but he says the exact opposite, like in the previous book that I just read? I mean, those are the kinds of things, and I say that, it's not to try to turn people into academics, but, you know, I teach at Eastern University, and I've seen young people coming from conservative points of view who are ready to figure it out on their own. And I've heard people say things like, you know, Seeing the Gospels and how they contradict each other is so affirming to me because they were actually thinking about what they're writing and they're trying to tell a story in a certain way. And their respect for Scripture was elevated. You know, it might not have done well, you know, going home for Thanksgiving or something, but 
they're actually at that place. So sometimes just digging in and paying attention and having little guides to help you, which can be something as simple as a good study Bible. Can I define good study Bible here? Yes, please. I was going to ask. Um, I don't want to name particular ones because I have friends all over and I don't want to sort of offend people, but I think study Bibles that don't come out of a more conservative orientation are very important because conservative study Bibles tend to be apologetic and they avoid problems. And that's why I I like things like, um, you know, the new Oxford annotated version of the Bible, which uh, has great footnotes. It's a new revised standard version. Uh, another one is a HarperCollins study Bible, which is, again, the new revised standard version. Um one that I use, where is it around here? This is I teach out of one, the New Interpreter Study Bible. Again, New Revised Standard Version. Um, the Jewish Study Bible. Yeah, you want to see footnotes you've never seen before in your life. That's the place to go, and it's an education. And some of those study Bibles have wonderful essays in the back that are just worth the price of the Bibles themselves, because it's like a real mini-education for those who are interested. And I, I think I would, in other words, I would try to inspire people to go back to the Bible with a sense of curiosity, and not a sense of like, okay, I got to get this down again. I guess I got to read it. No, be curious about something. What are you curious about, and go after it. And I think curiosity is a lost character trait in some Christian traditions. You're not supposed to be curious. You're just supposed to obey. Yeah, I mean, I just should just put a plug in for your podcast too, Pete. You and and uh, your compatriot Jared. I mean, you do a really good job of just winsomely bringing people into the story and getting at complications and um, things that are you can really get into. And like, you may feel you're not getting that far into it, but it does feel like um, it's a bit of a an academic education that's a lot more interesting than academic education can sometimes be. And so I think people really want to get into Scripture and be curious. I think you're, what you guys are doing there is really, really important. Yeah, and it's like there, there are other people out there who think about ways that are actually pretty common that you may never have heard of, and what it does, it expands people's minds and consciousness, and it realizes, oh, that's okay. Yeah, it's not just this freak on our show that did this. I mean, th- this is a common way of thinking mm. about issue X, Y, and Z. And the, the the people who are this is the I hope I think this is pretty common. People who are in that process of deconstruction and, and disorientation, they didn't come from liberal backgrounds. They came from conservative backgrounds. So the way to help that process once it's started, you can't stuff it back in the bag. Once that process has started to give people models of faith where they look at things differently than what you've been taught. So it's things, to, it's places to land or at least hold on to or at least look at as you're trying to navigate this stuff yourself. Hmm. And, you know, if churches did that, we'd be out of business, <laughs> the podcast, you know. But they, they don't do that because mm-hmm. they're trying to keep you back. They're trying to keep you in. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's true what you're saying about people coming from conservative backgrounds, but I would say, like, we didn't come from very conservative backgrounds. Our theological education was not conservative. And yet there's somehow sort of the the questions and the framework seeps in anyway for us. And so we feel like we have to somehow, somehow have an answer 
for how the Bible is going to impact us in certain situations. And it always seems like the conservative way of asking the question is sort of the starting point. And it's it, interesting. You know, you know the, the thing is, that's a really good point. I'm glad you said that because I think you're right. The, um, the, the legacy of, let's say, the liberal church, you know, the classical liberal church, is that things are going fine until science <laughs> and the Germans and Darwin or whatever. And then what they did was they sort of passed through the modern world, the modern period. And some have called it the acid bath of criticism, where all the fundamentalism is sloughed off. And then you come out the other side and you're like, what do we do now? Like, how do you even read this thing? And conservatives are a little bit different. They've they bypassed the evangelical world and fundamentalist world. They bypassed the whole modern era. And now they're at the other end. And they're asking a similar set of questions. Like, I feel like I've missed something here. People are having these conversations that assume certain kinds of things. Yeah, that have been around for hundreds of years. But they're having similar kinds of questions about like, how do I read those things? You know, I, I just, I mean, my experience, I see that de deconstruction coming. I think there are different kinds of deconstruction happening in different communities, right? But for whatever reason, I think like you're saying, a certain framework seems to be a default one, which is a simple, biblicistic, if it's the word of God, God wrote it sort of thing. And it's got to function in a certain way. And that's deeply ingrained uh, in the American experience, at least. And that goes back, there are reasons for that going back hundreds of years. It's, it's, it's less so in Europe. Definitely part of the American experience. The Bible is the authority, because we don't have a state church. That's one thing. We, we, we've only had the Bible to guide us um, through much of uh, you know, American history when people were moving west. Uh, there was no church to look to. You had the Bible becomes an authority in a way that it hadn't been before. Even even in the Reformation, with people like Calvin and Luther, it became a different kind of very simple, authoritative book that you can understand. Here it is. Do what it says. Right, and and I think that's very much part of um, American Christianity. Maybe even in 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 not traditionally conservative settings to maybe it's still lurking there. It's still part of the experience. Yeah. It's kind of, I, I find it kind of ironic that, you know, since the reformation where the, the reformation em emphasis on sola scriptura as being sort of a, a place to hang belief on a single place to hang belief on that we actually have this tremendous polarization and this tremendous diversity of understanding of scriptures sort of, birthing from that and now here we live in and i don't know it's hard to say we're in the most polarized time of of humanity but it feels like uh how do you how do you feel the bible how we see the bible could be of help in, in the midst of the polarizations that we experience i mean we know the u.s context is slightly different than canada but i mean for the most part like we we find ourselves pretty polarized these days yeah um I'm not sure how I see because I don't think the polarization is because of the Bible. I think the polarization is because of all sorts of cultural in America Christian nationalist kinds of ideals 
And you can patiently show people from the prophets why what you're doing here is really not a good idea. It's, it's not something that seems consistent with general biblical ideas and biblical teaching. You can talk to you blue in the face about how often, you know, Jesus talks about helping the poor and, you know, the oppressed and all that sort of thing. But the Bible is not going to change people. I think other people are going to change people. And, and, and you know, the winsomeness of people not debating them, but maybe just befriending them and letting them express what they're actually afraid of that's leading them to hold on to things like this, right? So I think the Bible has plenty of things to critique, you know, why people shouldn't storm the Capitol in the name of Christ, right? I mean, I think that I don't think it's hard to find verses or just general themes in the Bible, but it doesn't matter what they are because it's not the biblical themes that are making them do this. It's it's something much deeper that's deeply ingrained, at least in our culture, and it's getting to the bottom of that that's going to be the hard task. Well, I thought you I thought you solved the parenthood thing, so I thought you might be able to solve that one too. I guess okay. I was uh, sorry. Sorry we I didn't get I believe I just did. I just did. You just don't like the answer, Ted. That's the problem. <laughs> you wanted a quick fix, didn't you? Yeah, I d- totally did. <laughs> Do we have time for one more? Yeah, for, I think we have a little bit. We have some time. Yeah, we have yep. some time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Um another question from one of our community um people is how do we safeguard the process of reimagining God from simply reflecting myself and my thoughts right now? It seems to me God has often been reimagined in ways that end up being destructive, kind of what we're talking about before, instead of life-giving. Yeah, I mean, you can reimagine God as um, a Christian nationalist or a Nazi. You can definitely do that. Um and I don't know, I don't think there's a formula, but I think the community is there to help protect against that sort of thing. But of course, people find their communities that support them. Um, it is very risky to talk the way that I talk about reimagining God. The The problem, though, is that I, I think we're always doing that all the time anyway. What keeps me from saying, I want to reimagine God as a New York Yankee baseball fan and as a rich white person? I mean, what's keeping me from doing that? It's experiences I've had in life. It's communities I've been a part of where I can see that sort of thing is odious. It's taking seriously, and other people talk like this much more eloquently than I can, but um, if God is love, if that's actually what drives the entire cosmos, the love of God, I have to reflect on how whether my notions of God are consistent as best as I can see with some notion of love as I understand it. So I'm never going to be there perfectly, but I, I, it's, it's something to aim for that, uh, you know, again, keeps me from becoming a TV preacher who says, God wants you to send me all your money, right? That's that's also an act of reimagining God, that this is what God is like. We're always reimagining God. And in fact, I'll even go so far as to say we are forever thinking of God in our own image. That's a starting point. But then we have to be open to having that image critiqued, right? That's And that happens painfully. That's the process of deconstruction. The God that we've created in our own image is, in, is now no longer viable. 
and we have to look outside of that. The thing is, it's my experience that's actually pushing me towards that too, right? It's I've experienced things that make it seem unviable and now I have to keep going, right? So I think we can never get away from, there's no pure view of God that is apart from our human experience. It's always going to be there, but we have to have the humility and the insight and the presence of mind to always let that be sort of a conversation within ourselves and within the community. You know, I reimagine God as caring about earth care. I don't find it in the Bible. Some people do. I think they're wrong. I don't think it's there, but I believe that's consistent with what God is like. That's an act of reimagining what God is like in our day and age. And people have been doing that, I mean, as you know, within the Bible and ever since. That is what we do. How do you know if you've gone too far? Don't live in a cabin isolated by yourself in the woods. Be a part of Christian community, and they'll let you know. But some people will never know. Some people will never. I mean, I don't. I don't know how many people are who have. Um, I think very difficult notions about God that involve violence and nationalism and things like that. Will they ever be convinced? I think you're always going to have really bad images of God out there. And again, I think this is where um, kind of that discernment process or that wisdom work is both daunting and it's terribly humbling mm. that we don't we don't get to be certain about it, and being certain isn't the point. And um, yeah, I, I think that's freeing as well. I think I, I have found that as even again in our community that as people begin to let that, some of that permission um, and that ambiguity and diversity to be okay, that it has a way of like freeing you to engage it and to take it more seriously without the goal of getting it, getting it right See, every act of trying to reimagine what God is like is a confession of faith that God is beyond our thinking and experience. And we're just trying to get there. And unlike what, you know, I think I was certainly taught earlier in life, God is communicating clearly and once and for all exactly what God is like. That means God's always going to be capturable by our minds, our imaginations, our thinking. And that is simply inconceivable to me. I don't, I don't see how we can say that with a straight face. Quite frankly, God, I mean, it's a big universe we live in, you know. And and I, I've got this down, and I'm just a white guy in America. That's all. Who you know has a bank account. I, I can't possibly speak for humanity, let alone for the entire cosmos about what God is like. We catch glimpses, and those glimpses are great, but they're always up for discussion. I think that's well said. I think we should probably respect your time. You need to get on, and it's been uh, no. it's been a, it's been a real pleasure <laughs> just getting this opportunity and uh, and interacting. Well, we'll have to do it again. This was fun. Well, I, I had no idea you guys would be interesting to talk to. That's why I've been putting <laughs> it off for so long. <laughs> I'm just um, no, I'm glad it finally worked out, and we should certainly do it again. And um, you know, talk about all sorts of things. It sounds like a great. Uh, community you have there too so mm. that's i'm a little bit jealous but i have a i have a good episcopalian community i'm a part of but uh 
Well, that sounds good. No, I think we feel incredibly lucky to be where we are. And yeah, great. Um, lots of place to to grow and dig in and. Right. And you're part of that, so thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate And I would that. love point two. Peace to you, Pete. Right. And uh, you too, I hope, Ted. I hope yeah. you folks are are safe from the pandemic and able to move move yeah. around without too much trouble. I appreciate that, and good to meet you both. Sweet. Alrighty. Okay. Alrighty. Thanks, Pete. Thanks so much, Pete. Take care. Take care.